I think I got the bug, officially, when I read about how Anne Boleyn's headless ghost wanders the grounds at the Tower of London. I can't remember how young I was when I first read about it, but it was in a children's beginning chapter book full of weird and offbeat quote-unquote facts about monsters and ghouls and ghosts. I can't even remember the title of it now, all these years later. It got my mind racing, though, to think of this ghost, headless, walking through stone halls at night. Of course, they left out the rest of the story, about how she was the second wife of Henry VIII, how she was executed by beheading on trumped-up charges of treason, so that Henry could marry a third wife. And now, presumably because of that trauma and pain, she haunts the Tower of London, the place of her execution. Wouldn't she still need her ghost brain? Maybe she's wandering around the tower looking for her head, and once she finds it, she'll finally be able to find her way off the grounds. Of course, I'd have all these thoughts in the safety of daylight. Once night fell, it was far too dangerous to be thinking of ghosts. I've got something slightly different again this month. Hope you like it as much as you liked last month's. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, Eight Stories of Eight Hauntings. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. got a new student when I was in fourth grade, and that, by itself, wasn't so strange. She came in, and after a brief introduction by our teacher, her name was Emily May. She was from a few towns over. Her father had moved to this side of the state for work. She didn't say a word for the rest of the year. She, presumably, did her homework and did well on her classwork, because she followed us all to fifth grade, and then on to middle school and high school. She kept to herself, and everyone else, me and my friends included, kept to ours, at least when it came to Emily May. She made us uncomfortable with her silence. After graduation day, she disappeared from our lives, and again, that's not so strange because the vast majority of my classmates disappeared from my life shortly after graduation, or in the coming years. She came up one night while drinking with an old buddy, Nick. Emily May, the silent new kid. I remarked that I didn't think I had ever heard her voice, not once, and my buddy agreed. It was a few days after this conversation that the same buddy called me up one morning. He had dreamed about Emily. In the dream, Nick was back in the fourth grade classroom on the day Emily arrived, but there was no teacher and only a couple other students. When Emily arrived... 
The tone of the dream changed, he said. As soon as she showed her face, that's when it shifted. That was the moment he could feel the dream slowly slipping away into a nightmare. He sat at his school desk, paralyzed, while the other kids watched Emily walk over to him and grab him by the throat. And that's when he woke up. Weird, I said, but not unusual. We were just talking about her, after all. Nick didn't stop dreaming of Emily after the first. He dreamt of her often, in all manner of places. That fourth grade classroom, high school chemistry class, middle school gym. The dream was otherwise the same. He'd be in a classroom with no teacher present, and Emily would show herself. That's when the dream would slip into nightmare, and she would walk over to him and grab his throat. He started losing his voice after the fourth or fifth dream, I can't remember which. It's squeaking and failing, he said. I can hear that, I said, and my throats started killing. He stopped calling much after that last conversation. For months after that, actually. I tried calling often, but he would either not pick up or pick up and say nothing. I found out through a mutual friend, that he killed himself four months after we last spoke. Or at least, that's what the police said. He cut his own throat, ripped out his own voice box. Emily's started visiting me in my dreams now, too. And I've begun to wonder how much longer she'll let me keep my voice. She had been gone for a week, our old cat, when Patches came back late one night, howling to the moon. My mom let her in, and her new injury was immediately apparent. One eye was gone, plucked out by a predator or a nasty neighborhood kid, and the other eye was cloudy and rolled wildly, unable to focus on any one thing in particular. She also stank. Stank to high heaven like a wet cat usually does, but there was something else just underneath the dander and dirt, something no one could put their finger on. My dad remarked on the stench while my mom tried to grab her, but she avoided my mother's clutches and bolted underneath the couch, and that's where she stayed until the morning. The next morning, the smell had overwhelmed the entire house and my dad, deciding that we probably needed to take old Patches into the vet, hooked her out from under the couch with a broomstick into her waiting carrier. I asked to come along and carried the reeking cat in her plastic carrier the entire drive to the vet. The wait was long, and when Patches caught sight, or maybe it was smell, since she didn't exactly have eyes that worked. Of the waiting room full of animals, she wailed and gnashed her teeth. The doctor, when she finally saw us, took a brief look at Patches and told us the only thing wrong with her was the eye injury, though she couldn't be sure what had made the left eye clouded and dead. That night, sometime around midnight, Patches emerged from under the couch where she'd placed herself again and woke me from a deep sleep by jumping onto my chest. I patted her head, and she seemed to enjoy that. She pressed the top of her head into my hand and purred. 
I loved on her for a few moments, stroking the spot on her head between her ears. What's wrong? Why'd you wake me up, Furball? I asked. She stopped moving, stopped eagerly accepting my caresses, and then Patches put her paw onto my hand, as if to stop me. For the first time since she returned, Patches' cloudy eye focused right onto mine. And then she spoke. They're coming, she said. And another voice answered from somewhere in my dark room. We're here. He bought it at a yard sale. That's what he told my parents later, after the simple 50-piece puzzle had done its damage to my young mind, breaking it into pieces and assembling it back together in a way that would take years of professional help to correct. It had been the week leading up to my sixth birthday, and he had seen, driving down a country highway near his isolated home, a sign for a moving sale. The owners of a small split-level ranch on a couple of acres of land between town and my uncle's home had just sold the house and were moving two states away. A new job, the man told my uncle, and a new start, the woman followed. The usual stuff was for sale, old, nearly broken lamps, faded blankets, frayed towels, and piles of odds and ends. My uncle found a 25-foot length of hose which he bought and then saw the puzzle and thought of me. The puzzle was old, like everything else. Its wooden box was warped in places, but handsome nonetheless. The lid, which displayed the scene the puzzle ultimately depicted, once it was put together, slid out of a groove within the box, albeit with some difficulty because of the warping. The wood was painted red, though the paint was chipping. When my uncle slid the lid off and started counting the pieces, making sure they numbered 50, the man insisted it wasn't necessary. My uncle completed his count anyway, and when the pieces numbered 50, he bought the thing for $3. I was disappointed, to be honest, when I opened it to see its rough and faded exterior, and finding out it was a puzzle disappointed me further, ungrateful kid that I was. And so it got a place on my shelves that I planned to never take it down from. The day after my birthday party, waking up in the early morning with the first shimmer of light shining through my blinds, I found the box had been moved from what I thought would be its internal prison to the floor, and it had been opened, and it had been put together. The completed puzzle lay on my carpeted floor near the foot of my bed, mocking me. I told my parents, told them that the puzzle had moved on its own and put itself together on my floor, and they told me that I had put it together myself before I went to bed and I had just forgotten. I put the puzzle back in its box and put the box back on the shelf, and when I woke the next morning, again it had been taken down and all fifty pieces had been put together on the carpet near the foot of my bed. I tried everything, taping the box shut, but the tape just got removed, placing it beneath a stack of heavy books, but those were just pushed over. I nailed the wooden box together, but then the box was just split open, and each piece removed from a slit one by one. I threw the box in the trash can outside, but the puzzle found its way back into my room just the same.
I resolved to stay up one night to find the culprit, and made it until just past midnight before I started to fall asleep. But that was enough. I heard the wooden box scrape across the shelf high on the other side of my room, watched the box float through the air in front of me, watch it open all by itself, and I saw each piece find its configuration, one at a time, on the carpet near the foot of my bed. Then, I vomited into my sheets. He was dead when we voted him for mayor, and Harris Peterson now, legally, haunts City Hall. He ran on a platform that turned out to be popular with many, eliminate public jobs, shrink the size of the local government, and use the savings to invest in local schools and parks. The rub, of course, is that Mayor Harris Peterson is dead and his body had just been moved into one of those public parks, Juniper Public Cemetery. I guess he wasn't crazy about his new home. Someone should have said something, I guess, while the campaign was going on. It was obvious something wasn't quite right with Harris Peterson, the candidate. He never shook hands with anyone. He never held campaign events in the daytime. And occasionally, when the moon was just right and there weren't any clouds in the sky, you could see right through him. But no one did say anything. He promised to lower our taxes as low as they were already, and that's all it took, really, to get the majority of the city on board. His opponent, trailing only a few points behind him for most of the campaign, saw her support collapse when, in the debate two weeks before Election Day, she produced Harris Peterson's death certificate. Turns out no one wants to hear about a candidate's death, and the media spun the revelation as a stunt by the losing candidate, and an uncouth stunt at that. Peterson coasted to a win, scoring 70% of the vote. He's only been in office for half of his two-year term, and he's already declared that he'll never leave. Most of the city has turned on him, but he still has a solid base of support. Those that oppose him, myself included, have turned to black magic in the wake of a failed recall, holding group exorcisms and casting spells with the hope of driving the spirit from City Hall. His supporters have turned into an inquisition, hunting those that would seek to use magic against their beloved mayor, and stringing us up on the lawn in front of City Hall. Mayor Peterson, the ghost, has lived up to his promise at least. He's lowered taxes and consolidated the government, and diverted most of the budget to the public parks. Well, one public park. One part of one public park, his tomb. Harris Peterson's plot of land in the Juniper Public Cemetery is now extravagantly decorated, with huge marble carvings and a commissioned statue of himself. He had the plots surrounding his cleared out, the corpses inside of them relocated so that his corpse had more room. Not that he needs it. His ghost, like I said, is in City Hall. When Alex and I shared a room, we used to make a game of annoying each other. It was a prize to see the other's face turn red, to hear the frustration in their voice when we'd pushed each other's buttons just right. I'd set a trap to trip him as he came through the door, 
he'd hide my favorite toys in places I couldn't reach. One of our favorite games was keep the other one from falling asleep. The rules were simple. Every couple of minutes, say something stupid to keep the other from drifting off to sleep. One night, in the winter, Alex and I were playing just that game. Or, I was playing it and he was getting pissed. Alex, do you like cheese? I asked. Shut up, he said. And then, a few minutes later, I asked again. Alex, do you like cheese? If you don't shut up, I'm going to come over there and make you, Alex said. I laid silent, laughing to myself for a few more minutes until, again, I asked him about cheese and Alex, in response, threw his blankets off his bed, stomped across the floor, and gave me a Charlie horse. Our dad, from downstairs, pounded on the wall and yelled up to us that he could hear us messing around and to go to bed. I rubbed my now limp arm for a good fifteen minutes, grimacing, and forgetting about the game I had been playing, and then I fell asleep. I don't know how much time had passed, or even what time it was when I woke up. Our parents didn't let us keep a clock in our room after they discovered Alex and I had been playing How Late Can We Stay Up Before Falling Asleep and lasting until the early morning hours regularly on school nights. And I wasn't sure what had woken me, either, until a few silent minutes had ticked by, and Alex said, in a cruel and mocking voice, Didn't you hear me? Do you like cheese? You woke me up, I said, and then we fell into silence again. I drifted off, but just before I fell into a deeper sleep, Alex repeated the question I had tortured him with earlier. Do you like cheese? And then he giggled, soft, low, and malicious. Stop, I said. I'm tired. I heard Alex roll over and thought that was the end of it. I rolled over, too, to face the wall, to close my eyes, and to go back to sleep. Alex must have thought I'd fallen asleep quickly, because only minutes later, I heard him slip out of his bed and cross the room to the foot of mine. He must have been really upset at the game I had been playing earlier, and I knew how he was going to pay me back. He'd done it before, waited until I was asleep, and then jumped on top of me, screaming, scaring me half to death. I waited till he was at the foot of my bed and then let him know I was still awake. I can hear you, Alex. Stop it, I said. Do you like cheese? He asked me from the darkness near my feet, still mocking me. Stop, Alex. Let's go to sleep, I begged him. Then he grabbed my ankle. Hard. It hurt. I'd never known Alex to be that strong. He wasn't that much older than me. And he growled again. Do you like cheese? Alex, stop. That hurts, I shouted. And then Alex, from his bed across the room, shouted back. Shh! Who are you talking to, anyway? Grandma's house had a ghost, and she knew it. She saw it nearly once a month, in the hallway usually, a middle-aged woman silently drifting between rooms, searching for something. Pale white, wearing a white dress, shimmering in the darkness, the prototypical specter, haunting a place because of, we assumed, some tragedy. Grandma's house had a ghost, and I knew it too. I knew it because it became a thing we shared. 
When I went to stay at Grandma's house, she'd let me stay up too late and tell me stories all about the ghosts in her house, and we'd try to coax it out. But I never saw it during these trips, and I'd fall asleep listening to my grandmother's stories and wake up in the guest bed. It never seemed to frighten my grandmother, and she said as much when I'd ask her if she got scared when she saw it. She said it was because the ghost never seemed aggressive or violent, or to even notice she was there. She would, when my grandma saw her, continue on her way, drifting through the hallway from room to room to room, searching. We devised a plan, my grandmother and I, to talk my dad into timing my trips to grandma's around when she was due for a sighting. That meant once a month, nearly tripling our usual schedule. For a while, I'd arrive a few days before my grandma saw the ghost, or, more heartbreaking, a few days after. She'd relay the news. The ghost's already been around, probably won't see her this time. And we'd carry on with the weekend going to the park, watching old movies, making cookies. Except for one night. One night, we were up past my bedtime, watching a scary movie, when my grandma paused it. Did you see that? She asked me, but I hadn't. Grandma always had incredible eyesight, even for her age, so it wasn't out of the ordinary for her to point something out that no one else could see. There. Right there. I think it's here. What is? The ghost. I looked around, frantic, desperate to see the specter, but there was nothing to see. Where is it, Grandma? I asked her. Right there she said, pointing to the far wall. It's looking right at you. I've never seen her do that before. I shivered, looking everywhere along the far wall, searching, but not finding any ghost. Shh, it's walking, Grandma said. Walking where? I asked in a whisper. Towards us, she said. I looked at her and in the television light I could see the terror on her face. Her eyes followed something through the darkness across the room to my side. No, Grandma said. I felt ice around my ankle, and then before I knew it, I was on the floor sliding across the living room and into the hallway. Grandma jumped off the couch and ran after, quick as she could, but it wasn't fast enough. I slid down the hallway, past the guest room, past the bathroom, past Grandma's room, and into the small linen closet at the end of the hall. The door clicked shut, and it wouldn't open again after that. Grandma had to call the fire department to rip the door off its hinges. I didn't stay at Grandma's house ever again after that. The only source of heat is the fireplace. A single heat source for the small cabin we're staying in while we ski the mountains. We make this trip once a year, but it's never been quite this cold, and we usually stay at the ski lodge lower on the mountain. We found the cabin through a friend of a friend of a friend who owns it, but only uses it in the summer for hunting. And it shows. He said he'd never stayed in the cabin in the winter, but it would probably be fine, and for the most part it is, except for the draft that slips through the place, and the number of blankets we need to use to combat the freeze. The fireplace is a godsend, really. We, meaning my wife and I, 
huddle around the thing so close that at times it seems our hair might catch fire, or our skin might melt and fuse together, and we'd form into some shapeless monster like in those horror stories I used to read as a teenager. Luckily, there aren't any stars in the sky to shine their strange light down and hasten our transformation. My mind is wandering, thinking of precisely this, when my wife pulls her arm free from the knot we've made of our limbs and points toward the fire lapping at the brick surrounding it. What's that? I take a moment to look where she's pointing, deep down in the fire, where the flame meets the now charred wood. I don't see anything but glowing embers. I don't see anything, I say. There. Where? Right there. She leans forward to more plainly point where she means to. I follow the curve of her bicep, past her elbow, down her forearm, and off the tip of her finger, following the line of her arm precisely. My eyes look deep into the fireplace, past the flames, past the logs, past the embers, into the shadows between everything, and I see it. A face, bright red and tight like leather. It notices us looking at it and smiles. The smile is slight at first, but then its taut leathery lips part. Its teeth are black like coal, and the thing doesn't stop smiling. The corners of its mouth curve further and further up its cheeks until its smile has cleaved its face in two. Then the skin peels back and drops off, or flares up and drifts into the chimney, and what's left is a blackened skull, grinning out of that small shadow between two logs. I shudder involuntarily, and my wife lets out a small grunt as she turns back to face me, and then we dismiss it as a trick of the light. That is, until we mention it to the friend of a friend of a friend who owns the place. Yeah, he says. I've seen it too. Apparently it's the spirit of some wicked murderer who set a whole family on fire up there and smiled while they burned. I like to think you're looking straight down into hell and watching the bastard burn. Veronica woke to find the first one on the morning of her 26th birthday. High on the back of her left arm, a bruise, painful and deep. She assumed she had hit her arm on something the prior day and just didn't remember and generally forgot about it for the rest of the day, except on the rare moments she'd bump her arm into something around the office. That night, at her favorite bar, where she was celebrating her birthday with her friends, one of them noticed something peculiar about the bruise. Looking at that black and blue splotch, in the right light, at the right angle, it appeared to depict a human face, long and sunken, contorted in pain. The bruise disappeared in a few days, as most bruises do, but soon it was replaced by another on her right thigh. Just as painful, just as deep, splotches of black and blue that, in the right light, from the right angle, looked like a human face, long and sunken and contorted in pain. Then that bruise faded as well, as bruises do. And then another bruise appeared, and then another and another. One after the other, a bruise would appear from nowhere, a bruise that looked like a face, and then it would fade and another would take its place. 
and then the bruises stopped waiting until the last one had faded to appear on Veronica's body. When she went to the doctor, the doctor told her to get more vitamin C and more iron, and that, oh, the similarity to faces was probably just in Veronica's head, and he could recommend someone to talk to if she was feeling stressed. The bruises kept coming for years that way. Sometimes she would go months without a face-like bruise on her body. Other times, she would have five or more spread over her legs and chest and arms and back. And then they started looking at her. She'd catch them in the mirror brushing her hair. She'd catch them in the shower, bent over to wash her feet. She'd catch them while she was laying in bed. The eyes of those pained faces would catch hers, like she was in a coffee shop and she kept catching someone across the room staring at her. And soon, she had to assume they were watching her every move. She caught herself talking to one bruise in particular late one night after she had gotten out of bed to drink some water. Frustrated that she found it looking at her, she yelled at it, told the bruise to stop looking at her, told them all to stop staring, and then laughed at herself and considered maybe the doctor she had seen was right and she was seeing things that weren't there. She laid back down in bed and took a deep breath and rolled over toward the closet and saw a face she recognized, a face she'd seen on her body quite recently, staring back at her from the shadows of the closet. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, in order, were called The New Kid in Class, The One-Eyed Cat Came Back, Puzzle Pieces, City Hall, Shh, Grandma's House, Staying Warm, and Black and Blue. And were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Bumps and to bruises. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Ha, 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 ha,